0: Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, let, let's start this morning by reading our text for today, Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 27 to 34. Matthew nine twenty-seven to 34. Here's what it says. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But as they went away, they spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons The two healing stories in our text today are the first or the sorry the final two miracles that Matthew presents. Remember we've seen nine miracle stories in chapters 8 and 9, nine miracles that were designed to show Jesus's authority. And there was three sets of three miracles kind of divided by a little Interludes on what it means to follow Jesus. Three sets of three miracles. The first set of three, chapter 8, 1 to 17, Jesus healed a leper. Then Jesus healed a centurion's paralyzed servant, and he did that from a distance. And then Jesus healed Peter's mother in law. She had a fever. In the second set of three, Jesus calmed a storm. He rebuked the winds and the waves. Or the winds and the sea and, and calmed that storm. Then he casts out demons on the other side of the lake and then he came back and he forgave the sins and healed a paralytic who was carried in on a mat. And he, he forgave his sins and then he healed him to show that he had the authority to forgive sins. And then in the third set of three, chapter nine, verses 18 to 34, the section that we're going to kind of finalize today, Jesus rose a, a girl from the dead, and then remember on the way with that miracle, there was also another miracle kind of tied into that story where Jesus healed a lady with a discharge of blood. The um, eighth miracle, or the, the ninth, depending on if you want to count that last one as two, Jesus heals then two blind men, and then the final miracle, final set of three, Jesus heals a mute by casting out a demon. Now these nine or ten amazing miracles came right after Jesus' amazing words in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount ended with verse 28 and 29, chapter 7 says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so we've seen the authority of Jesus's words and now the authority of his deeds. He, Jesus, healed these people and performed these miracles. He rebuked the storm. He cast out demons. He forgave sins. No holy man could do these things. No mere man can do this. In this whole context that we've seen, never once does Jesus uh, ask God to do these things. He doesn't, he doesn't pray saying, Lord, heal this person. Jesus does these things himself. And all of this is meant to bring us to a decision to follow after Jesus Christ. We're meant to see who Jesus is. We're meant to see that he is God the Son in human flesh. And seeing who he is, we're meant to come to him, to trust in him, and to become one of his followers, one of his disciples. And these final two miracles, the the ones that we're going to look at today, are the the climax of them all. Even though last time we saw uh, Jesus raise someone from the dead, yet even even still, these miracles are in a sense greater than that. Last time, when we looked at that, that passage where Jesus heals the girl from the dead, raises her from the dead, we, we saw that Elisha and Elijah had both raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Peter raises Dorcas from the dead, if you remember that passage. But nobody besides Jesus in the Old Testament or in the New Testament ever restored the sight of somebody born blind nor does anyone else restore the hearing of a deaf or the speaking of somebody who is mute. And these two miracles in particular, the opening of, of eyes and the unblocking of ears, were signs that revealed the coming of the Messiah. These were, these were signs that were given in the Old Testament that would, would show that the, the person who's able to do these things is the Messiah, Isaiah 29, 18 talks about a day, and I'll quote it here, when the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And that day is tied to the coming of the Messiah. The deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And actually, I want you to turn to another passage, I want. let's look at Isaiah 35. And I just want you to kind of see that, that these, these are the signs that Jesus is the one who is to come. Isaiah 35, really verse 5 is, is the key verse, but we're, we'll start reading at verse 3. Isaiah 35, 3, it says, "'Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees.'" Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so here's, here's the sign. God, the, God is going to come and save his people. He's going to come with recompense. God himself is going to come and save. And then verse 5, then, in other words, when he comes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And we could just stop there. And so God is going to come. God is going to save. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap and then the mute will sing for joy. And so these miracles in particular show that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the, the promised Savior, that he is God in human flesh, come to save his people from their sins. And it was exactly this passage, Isaiah 35, that Jesus pointed to when John the Baptist asked if Jesus was the one to come. And I want you to, to go to that passage. That's in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus pointed to Isaiah 35. He pointed back to Isaiah 35 To prove that he was the Messiah when John was beginning to doubt in prison. So Matthew chapter 11, I believe we've kind of looked at this passage before a little bit. Matthew 11 verse 2 says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see, or sorry, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, To John, in effect, I'm doing the very things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Isaiah prophesied that I would do these things, and they're happening right now, even before the eyes of your disciples that you sent to me. And blessed is the one, John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And that word there, blessed, means happy, it means uh, privileged, it was used in the Sermon on the Mount, favored is the one, or or such a one who is is not offended by me is in an enviable position, they're in a, a good position. And so it's an encouragement to John to to believe that Jesus is the Christ because he's doing the very things that Isaiah said the Christ would do. Now we're going to look at these two miracles today, two, two miracles designed perhaps more than any other to show us that Jesus is the one who is to come. These are here to help us recognize Jesus again as the Messiah, to see him for who he is, and then to encourage us to follow him, to become a disciple of his. And I've organized the message around kind of these four almost contradictory elements in the story, these kind of reversal things that are happening in the story. The two blind men who had never seen, they, they had never seen Jesus perform a miracle. They believe, right? They, they, they're blind. They can't see. They don't, they don't see what Jesus is doing. They just hear about it from others. But these blind men believe. And so theirs is literally a blind faith. And then when their eyes are open in verse 30, Jesus tells them not to let anyone know, but they, they go and spread the news about him through the whole area. And so I, I called that the open secret. It's a, a secret, but it's out in the open. And then third, we're going to see the mute man speak. He was mute and now he speaks. That's kind of in verses 32 and the, the first bit of 33. I called that mute speech. And then fourth, we see the the two responses to what Jesus had done. The two responses, the crowds and the Pharisees, and, and I called it contrary conclusions. And so let's get into it then. Let's see number one. Let's look at the blind faith of these men, these men, men who were blind. We don't know if they were born blind or not, but these men were blind. Verse 27 starts, and as Jesus passed on from there, two men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. This miracle is, is tied then to the preceding one. The, the text starts with the word and. And as Jesus passed on from there. And so again, we, we ask, for, well, from where? Well, Jesus was at the house of the synagogue ruler and he, where he raised his daughter, the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead. And as Jesus was leaving there, these two blind men follow him. This account of the healing of these two men only occurs in Matthew, and there's a a similar story of another healing of two blind men in Matthew chapter 20. There, in Matthew 20, Jesus heals two blind men near near Jericho who cried aloud, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, it's not surprising to see Jesus healing multiple blind people. I'm sure Jesus healed many more blind people than are recorded in Scripture. Blindness, apparently, was a huge problem in ancient Israel. Um, apparently, even, even to this day, there's a lot of blindness there. The, the, the bright sun and the blowing sand leaves uh, people with all kinds of vision problems. And it's not surprising to see Jesus heal two blind men together because blind people typically live with other blind people, they kind of associate together and help one another. And so we have two blind men here and then again two blind men in chapter 20. Now they were at or near the house of the the synagogue ruler where the synagogue ruler lived. And as Jesus and his disciples kind of left from the healing of this dead girl, these men begin to follow him. And this must have been quite a sight to see this. These men are blind. And so they can't, they can't see. And they, and they, they begin following Jesus maybe by the sound of the crowd. And so they're, they're listening for the crowd and, and maybe they're, they're feeling their way along the path that Jesus took, the, where, wherever Jesus was going. And maybe from time to time somebody would come along and, and give them a little bit of help as, as they, they're trying to follow Jesus and they're, they're crying aloud. They're, they're crying out. And this word, to cry out, is a, a very strong word used in Matthew uh, Matthew 8.29 where the demon-possessed men cry out. You could look at that. You're probably very close to that. Matthew 8.29 And behold, they, that's the, the demon-possessed men in the context, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? before the time. That word cried out is used again in Matthew 14 when Jesus, in the night and in a storm, He walks out on the water to meet His disciples. And so this is kind of in the the middle of the night during a storm, Matthew 14, 26 says, but when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out, in fear. And so you can imagine in the darkness and in the storm, the disciples kind of like almost shrieking as they think a ghost is coming to walk towards them on the water, a terrifying scene. And so they cried out. And that word is again used moments later when Peter, who remember Jesus asked him to come out on the water, and Peter asked if he could do that, and he walks on the water, and then Peter begins to sink. And and verse thirty of that same chapter, Matthew fourteen thirty, says, But when he saw the wind he was afraid and he be, beginning to sink he cried out lord save me and so these men were crying out son of david have mercy on us they were making quite a racket and so it would have been quite a thing to see notice again have mercy on us son of david is what they cry they ask for mercy mercy is pity towards the miserable Mercy is for those who are in distress. Mercy is God's goodness shown towards those who are suffering or in distress or miserable in some way. This is the cry of the sinner in Luke 18. The the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. A cry for mercy. Mercy. Now the mercy that these men are crying out for isn't necessarily the, the mercy of salvation. It seems that they want a healing mercy. They want pity on them that, that Jesus would restore their vision. But at the same time, they recognize Jesus as Son of David. Son of David. This is the first time that anyone calls Jesus Son of David in the book of Matthew. Although, we did see Matthew call Jesus that in Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the angel in Matthew 1.20 called Joseph as well son of David because Joseph was a direct descendant of King David. To be son of David, or to be the son of David is to be the Christ, again, the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world. And so these two blind men have somehow come to see that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Messiah, that He's the Savior. Perhaps they knew Isaiah 35 and they thought Jesus can, can open blind eyes. They must have heard of his miracle power, but they they wouldn't have been able to see any of the miracles that he had done. And as they cry out for mercy and as they follow Jesus to the house, Jesus seems to ignore them. At least while they're out in public. Matthew has now, of course, shortened these stories about as much as possible, but Jesus seems to ignore these men. And they're crying out, and Jesus is passing on from there. And as far as we know, nobody speaks to them until they are inside the house. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus enters the house. Now, we don't know which house this is. It could be Matthew's house. That was the last house mentioned in the context. Matthew, remember when he came to Jesus, he hosted a dinner for Jesus and his disciples. And so that was really the last house that they were at before the synagogue rulers. Some people think this might have been Jesus' own house in Matthew, or in, yeah, in 413. We saw that Jesus lived in Capernaum, but remember in Matthew 8.20, Jesus said he had nowhere to lay his head. And so, anyways, whatever this house is, they entered the house, and Jesus enters, and then the blind men make their way in as well. And so they come right into the house where Jesus is. And it's understood, again, that the mercy that they want is Healing. Verse 28, when, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Jesus asked them if, if they believe that he can heal them. This is one of the, the only miracles in Matthew where the recipient is required to have faith. And I think it's important to point this out because A lot of so-called modern faith healers, they, they blame their inability to heal on a lack of faith in the one being healed. Or really, maybe it'd be the one being not being healed, right? In, in these so-called faith healings. But when, when, when somebody, when a, when a healing doesn't happen, they, they'll often blame it on a lack of faith. But in Matthew, although there's times where faith is connected to healing, it, it, it's never dependent on faith. The leper believed that Jesus was able to heal him if he was willing. The centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant even from a distance, but nothing is said about the servant's faith in that context. Nothing is said about Peter's mother mother-in-law whether she believed anything Jesus healed her of her fever. The demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They had no faith. They, they in fact, or at least the demons speaking through those men, wanted Jesus to leave them alone. When the paralytic was healed, it was the faith of the whole group that was mentioned. That's Matthew 9, 2. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" When you think about the dead girl in Matthew 9 that Jesus rose from the dead, she obviously didn't exercise faith. She was dead. And so why does Jesus specifically ask these men if they believe? Again, Jesus' healing power is not dependent on faith. But by faith, these men get to participate in and experience what Jesus is doing. Notice Jesus says in that context there, he says, That I am able. Jesus is the one doing this miracle. He takes the credit. Do you believe that I am able to do this? He doesn't say, do you think that my father will answer him if I ask him? He says, do you believe that I am able? And they believe and they say, yes, Lord. They call Jesus Lord. And here Lord has its fullest meaning. They know that Jesus is God come down, the son of David. Lord here means master, and probably even more than master, probably even in the Old Testament sense of Yahweh, they recognize that he is God. They believe Jesus is who he claims to be, and that as God the Son incarnate, he has the ability and the power to heal them. And then in verse 29, having kind of gotten their assurance that they believe, Jesus touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And as I thought about this this week, I, I think it's neat that Jesus touched their eyes. You know, blind people are, are more dependent on touch, right? They can't see, and so they can, they can feel. They perceive the world through feelings and sound and smell. And so Jesus touched their eyes to heal them. And when he says there, according to your faith, be it done to you, the idea isn't so much that... That so much faith equals so much healing. It's more like you believe, therefore you are healed. Because you believe, I will heal you. What what you believe, I will do for you. And so that was blind faith. They couldn't see, but they believed. And in a sense, as I as I kind of thought about this this week, our faith is very similar to what theirs would have been. You know, we haven't seen Jesus, have we? We, we haven't seen with our own eyes, we haven't seen any miracles that he did. We've, we've seen the word of God, we've, we've heard about what Jesus did through the word of God, but we've never seen it with our own eyes. First Peter 1.8 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And I think that really relates to us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And it also reminds me of Thomas who told the other disciples that he would not believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless he saw his hands and put his finger into the mark of the nails. And Jesus appeared a little bit after that in John 20, 27, and he said this. He said to Thomas, Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's really us. Blessed are we when we haven't seen Jesus and yet we have believed in him. We are in an enviable position. We are blessed if we believe in and if we trust in Jesus even though we haven't seen Him. And so that was blind faith and in a sense we also don't see and yet believe in Christ. Next, let's look at the open secret in verses 30 and 31. I called this the open secret first because Jesus opens their eyes but also because they openly share what Jesus told them to keep secret. Look at verse 30. And actually I'll go back there myself here. Matthew 9. 9 and verse 30 says, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Their eyes were opened, and and again, with this healing, like many other healings that Jesus does, there's no big scene. It's just a a private miracle in the house. Jesus touched them, he touched their eyes, and their eyes were open. Now, if you think about it, and you can, (coughs) and you can, um, enter into what these men would have felt and experienced, how amazing would this have been for these men? They, They were blind, but now, they can see. And I love this this, this story of the, the blind man in John chapter 9. That blind man in John 9 said this. He says in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And so again, this is an amazing miracle. Something never before or or, or, or never done before or after Jesus came. But opening blind eyes were some of the most commonly reported miracles that Jesus did. Jesus healed more blindness than any other sickness or disease, or at least there's more recordings of Jesus's healing blindness than of any other thing that he healed. And so Jesus opens these men eyes and they see, and then he sternly warned them. And that's a very strong word there, a very emotional word. There's, a, there's an emotional kind of plea with these men, see that no one knows about it. For whatever reason, Jesus didn't want this particular miracle to be known. And and we really, we aren't told why. Maybe because these blind men had such a clear understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God that he was the son of David. Perhaps Jesus didn't want that news spreading too widely yet at this point. Remember, the nation Israel is expecting the Messiah to come and and to overthrow the government. And they didn't understand that Jesus would first lay his life down as a sacrifice for our sins. And so perhaps Jesus didn't want the news of his Messiahship going out that broadly yet. But for whatever reason, Jesus wants this particular miracle kept under wraps from these two men. That's why it seems like he waits till they're in the house before he even talks to them or opens their eyes. Matthew 9:30 again, see that no one knows about it. But although these men had faith and it seems that they were truly saved, they did not obey. And you almost get the sense here that, that they really could not obey. They they just they couldn't help themselves to tell people about Jesus. And they went in verse 31, and they, they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Now, if you think about it, it's inevitable that if, if you were blind and now you can see, it's it's pretty much inevitable that some people are going to hear about this thing, right? You're not going to be able to keep this a total secret, But these men kind of do more than that. It's more than just kind of like, you know, spreading through the town of Capernaum, small town. Everyone would have known these men were blind. Now they can see. But this is, this is more than that. The, the men themselves spread the word through all that district. Literally, they spread the news of him. They made him known. The ESV translates it, they spread his fame. The, the New American Standard, if I remember right, says they, they spread the news about him, but it's just literally they spread it or him. And I think it's most likely they spread him. They, they, they told everybody about him. They made Jesus known. And I, I really find this to be an incredible thing. Jesus had touched them and, and they couldn't help telling others about him. Even even his stern warning and his strict command couldn't keep them silent. And they went and they told everybody around about Jesus Christ. And one of the best motivators for us to spread the news about Jesus is just to think about what Jesus has done for us. These men thought about what Jesus did for them and they just knew that other people need to know about Jesus. They just they he did look what he did for me. Look at how he changed my life. I was blind, but now I see and that's exactly what these men are doing. Think about how others need salvation, right? You think about what Christ has done for you and 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 how other people need that same thing. Think about the forgiveness of our sins and what will happen if others if other people's sins aren't forgiven. Think about the joy that you have in knowing God and how the world needs that same joy and that same blessing. And that's really one of the greatest motivators for evangelism that there can be. Their own experience of Jesus compelled them to go and compel others to follow Him. Now, of course. We are not told to be silent, and so we don't have to worry about that. We are not commanded to keep quiet about the Lord. And for Act, in fact, for us, it's just the opposite, isn't it? We're, we're commanded to to go out and make disciples of all nations. And so what they did in disobedience, we are free to do and even commanded to do by the Lord. And in Matthew 10, in the next section that we're going to look at, we're going to see the call of disciples to go and make the Lord Jesus known to the world. In fact, in, just kind of leading into that verse, Matthew 9, 37, just look at it just a few verses after. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his, into his harvest. We're going to look at that text Lord willing next week, but we're to pray for laborers and we're to earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest and, and ask Him to send laborers into the harvest. And then we ourselves, as we'll see in chapter 10, we ourselves are to be an answer to our own prayers that way. And so Jesus says, pray earnestly and then, and then serve earnestly. Speak about the Lord earnestly. And so again, what they did in disobedience, we are to do in obedience. And so if we have spiritual sight from Jesus, our mission is to spread the good news to others. And nothing helps us overcome our natural resistance to that work, the labor, as Jesus calls it, of evangelizing, like a sense of what Jesus did for us. If you want to be motivated to tell others about Jesus, just think about what he's done for you, how he's changed your life, and and think about the, the need that other people have for that very thing. Paul knew that when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, the love of Christ controls us. And he's talking about how, like, why does he do ministry? Paul, why do you do ministry? Every time you go to a new town, they're trying to stone you and kill you. And everyone seems to be against you. What what keeps you going, Paul? And he says, it's the love of Christ that controls us. Then he says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so again, the love of Christ, the love that Christ showed in our salvation, that's what motivated Paul in his ministry, and it's what's to motivate us in ours. Paul thought, if Jesus died for me, then, then I died with him, and my life is now to be lived for Jesus' sake. If the love of Christ isn't controlling us, then we've forgotten what Jesus has done for us. And so that was the open secret. The, the men go and they spread the word everywhere in disobedience. And then third, this third contradictory element in verses 32 and 33 is a, another remarkable healing miracle. This one is compressed into just one and a half verses, and I called it... Uh mute speech, verses thirty-two and thirty-three. Look at verse thirty two, it says, And as they were going away, so the, the blind men are now seeing and they're they're leaving the house. Behold, a demon oppressed man who is mute was brought to him. And so the blind men are leaving when when literally they brought a demon possessed man to him. And we aren't told who who brought this man. And really, honestly, we're, we're really not told very much about this one. He was a man. He was demon-possessed. He was mute. And some people brought him to Jesus. Now, the word there translated mute could either mean mute or deaf or both. So, mute or deaf or both. And often, a, a mute person is mute because they can't hear. And so they, they, they can't speak because they can't hear. And so those things often go together. And in Greek, there's just one word for mute and for deaf. Here, when they're healed, they're, they're, the result is that the man speaks. And so we know that he was a mute. But in Matthew 11, which we looked at earlier, the same word is translated deaf. And the cure in Matthew 11 is that the deaf hear. And so Jesus casts out the demon and then the mute spoke. Verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And so somehow this particular demon prevented this man from speaking. This final miracle is included I think first because the the healing of of, of deafness and muteness was was part of what Isaiah had prophesied the Messiah would do and and again Jesus is going to point to this in Matthew 11 so Matthew puts this here so that he can point back to this in chapter 11. And also the the second I think this miracle is here because it it seems to be included because of the response that we see from the crowd and and from the Pharisees. And so let's go into that then. Number four, contradictory conclusions. The second part of verse 33 and 34. Contrary conclusions. The crowds, they marveled. Look at verse 33 again. and, And the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now what the crowd said was true. Nothing had been done like this in Israel. And and kind of the idea is if nothing had been done like this in Israel, then, then nothing has been done like this even in the rest of the world. Israel is God's special people. And so if nothing like that had ever happened in Israel, then nothing had, had ever happened like that in the world. Never before had anything been seen like this. No prophet had ever done anything like this. No prophet did what Jesus did here. None of the, none of the kings did anything like what Jesus did. No judge, no seer, no priest. Nobody compares to Jesus Christ and his amazing authority. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. What, what, what was happening in that moment, in that day, in all of these miracles that Matthew records, there has never been anything like this in the history of the world. Now, I think what happens in verse 33 or what's said in verse 33, whether the crowd that was there at that time was only speaking about the, the seeing of the, the blind and the, the hearing of the mute person or the, the, hearing, the speaking of the mute person, I think Matthew has this here to kind of summarize this whole section for us. What Jesus did is unique. No one ever before or no one since has done what he did. He basically, again, if we just kind of summarize this whole section, he eradicated sickness and disease in Galilee. Look at verse 35, the very next verse. It's kind of a a summary of what we saw before in chapter 4. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus again healed leprosy. He healed paralysis. He healed fever. He healed sickness, every kind of sickness and every kind of affliction. Jesus had authority over demons. Demon-possessed men who were so fierce that no one could take the road that went past their camp. Remember, they begged Jesus to let, let the demons go into the pigs. Jesus had authority over nature. He rebuked the wind and the sea, and the wind and the sea obeyed him. Jesus had authority to forgive sins and he proved it by healing the paralytic. Jesus had authority over death when he raised the dead girl to life. The crowd saw it and then they and they said, "Wow." Now they don't maybe recognize the full extent of who Jesus is, but they do recognize that nothing like this had ever happened before in the history of Israel. And that's at least the proper response to Jesus Christ. You know, we should all recognize that he is more than some special teacher. Some people kind of want to relegate Jesus to this status of a, a good teacher back in the day. Well, that Jesus is much more than that. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God, the Son incarnate, God, the Son in human flesh, taking on a human nature, living through a fully human nature. C.S. Lewis famously said something like, and I didn't look it up exactly, but Jesus was either a liar Or a lunatic, or he was the Lord. Now, good teachers don't claim to be God, right? Good teachers don't claim that they're God in human flesh. Liars and lunatics, on the other hand, can't open the eyes of the blind. And so we recognize and realize that Jesus is the Lord. And Matthew, who wrote this gospel, was a a wealthy businessman, and he left everything to follow Jesus, and he was an eyewitness of most of these events that he has recorded for us. And so we know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Matthew was an eyewitness, and so were the other apostles, and they have recorded the Word of God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have come to believe these very same things. The Pharisees, on the other hand, wanted to reject Christ they didn 't want to follow him to them, following him would have meant giving up their positions of power, giving up their wealth they, they, they weren 't ready to do that like Matthew did. They, they would have had to give up their pride. They were spiritually blind. The Pharisees were spiritually dead, but even they in their in their desire to reject the truth, even they couldn't keep from seeing Jesus's miracles they couldn't deny that Jesus cast out demons and so they had to come up with another excuse they had to come up with some reason to reject this Christ and so they said in verse 34 he casts out demons by the prince of demons they said Jesus casts out demons by the power of a higher demon and so they denied the source of his power since they couldn't deny the power itself. And of course, their, their charge is ridiculous. You know, whenever you see demons in the New Testament, they're wreaking havoc. They're They're causing destruction. They're hardening people's hearts. They're turning people away from God. Jesus, on the other hand, is healing people, stopping destruction, and turning people to God. The following verses again show that Jesus isn't operating by the prince of demons. Look at verse 35 again. He went out through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's not the marks of somebody who's operating by the prince of demons, We've seen Jesus' authority and we've seen his power. He gave the blind sight. He made the mute speak. We've seen the response to his amazing works. The blind men were disobedient, but they went and spread Jesus' fame all around. They preached Christ because of what he did for them. We've seen the response of the crowds. They marveled, but the Pharisees grumbled. And so I ask then, well, what about you? What is your response to Jesus Christ. The proper response or the response that that this section of Scripture would warrant is for us again to come to Jesus. This section is asking us to give our lives for Him. Matthew wants us to become a disciple of His, to follow after Him, to live for Jesus Christ and the glory of God, just like what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And from then on, our mission, if we have come to Christ, our mission is to do what the blind men were not to do yet. Our mission is to make Christ known, to spread his fame, and to help others live for him. And that's what we're here for as a local church, and that's what each of us individually as disciples of Christ are here for. We're to make him known, to spread his fame, and to help other people learn to live for him and follow him. And so that's what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for showing us one final time the amazing authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that what he did on the earth in those days, nobody had ever matched. We thank you that, that nobody has or will do what he has done and that he is our, our Lord, that, that we have seen him. We thank you, Father, for opening our, our eyes that we might know him and come to him And Father, for those who might be here today who don't know him, we pray that you would open their spiritual eyes as well, draw them to follow after your son and become a disciple of his. Open their eyes like you did to Matthew, and we pray that you would use us towards that end, that we too would spread Christ, that we would make him known throughout all this district and all this area, and even to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.